Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. My name is David, and I will be your host for today. In this episode, we'll talk to Rachel E. Edelman about her 2017 monograph published by Sheffield Press entitled The Female Ruse, Women's Deception and Divine Sanction in the Hebrew Bible. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So we usually like to start these interviews by asking our guests uh, just their current back, just their current background and how they came to uh, write the book. Yeah, so the idea of the female ruse had its inception when I first learned Torah at my father's knee. Um, And we learned about the role of Eve in the Garden of Eden. Um, And he had this whole idea that um, when woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was good to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and gave it to the man who was with her. And he ate. And so Eve, I've always thought of when she offers the fruit to the man that was with her as the first actor in female subterfuge. And I began to see a pattern actually about the ways in which women have knowledge and become repositories for knowledge throughout the Hebrew Bible. Uh, So we begin with Rebecca knowing the oracle about what would happen to the two sons that she was carrying in her womb and how she knows more than her husband knows, and onward from that. So it's it's really a, a theme that has pursued me for many, many, many years. And uh, I finally put it together and I said, here's a book. So I guess just going back to the beginning and defining our terms, uh, what is the female subterfuge and the female ruse? Okay, so a ruse or a subterfuge, I trace back to the terms of um, subtool, subtil meaning in Latin, below the surface of things, and fuge as related to the word for flight, fugio. And it seems to me that what she has is she, she like a brer rabbit and in, in the in the stories of Uncle Remus and uh, Prometheus stealing fire from Mount Olympus, there are these female tricksters who use, um, go below the surface of things, subter, and escape and flight, find a source of freedom in um, the way they deploy, deploy the special knowledge that they embody. It's the power of the weak. The trickster is the power of the weak. 
So Wendy Dodiger, for example, dubbed these classical scenes in the Hebrew Bible as bed tricks. Um, so we have, you know, sex with a partner whose identity is some somewhat obscured. My, my next question is, in your introduction, you mentioned that you are not really concerned with source criticism, textual criticism, as in documentary hypothesis, supplementary hypothesis, uh, from your from your method from your methodology, and you want to take the text as a whole. Uh, do we only see the subterfuge as taking the text as a whole, rather than maybe what the original authors intended? No, I don't think so. Not necessarily. Uh, I think what the final redacted version adds to the reading is the intertextual component that uh, the stories of Lot are in conversation, the stories of Lot's daughters who also engage in a bed trick and they seduce their father, that story is in conversation with Tamar and Judah, which is in conversation with the, uh, with the, you know, uh, the story of Ruth um, who seduces Boaz in the granary. Um, so the redact- final redacted text allows that conversation to take place. But the, the idea of a bed trick is true to all of the sources, J, I, probably mostly J. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I don't see it as, as um, their biblical criticism as exclusive to that. And in fact, I, in my book on, in the chapter on Ruth and the messianic line um, leading up to the, you know, the birth of David, uh, I very much um, talk about perhaps authorial intent um, but it's the redactor that is making that intention obvious. Yeah. So you 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 mentioned in your Ruth chapter that uh, Ruth sort of, I guess, colors or adds a perspective on the earlier uh, Genesis narratives of Rachel and Leah and Tamar and Judah. What sort of like perspective does the Ruth chapter, uh, I guess, allow us to read back into those earlier narratives? So the Ruth chapter, uh, in chapter four, uh, at the scene of the gate, there is a blessing that takes place. Um, the elders of the town stand forth and the women of the town stand forth. Let me just pull that up um, because it's important to have the words in our mind. So um, here, so in the act when, when um, Boaz marries Ruth, Uh, She becomes his wife and he cohabits with her just before the marriage. There's a blessing that says, um, 
at the gate, the elders say we are, they witness the, the transaction of it's a leveret, a quasi leveret marriage. And they say, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built up the house of Israel, prosper in Ephrata and perpetuate your name in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of parrots whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring, which the Lord will give you by this young woman. That's the, uh, the, the NJPS translation. So um, both Rachel and Leah are invoked and Tamar, who uh, the mother of uh, parrots is invoked. And then at the very end, we have the line from parrots all the way to David. So this invocation is an allusion back to the, the, the sort of the primal, the primal uh, bed trick that happens to Jacob when the two wives are switched. Ruth in invoking, by the elders in invoking Rachel and Leah are putting Ruth on par with the matriarchs. But it's strange to allude to the line of parrots, right? Toledot parrots. Why, why does suddenly, parrots is never a figure in the, in the, in the story, you know, in, in, in narrative, in the biblical narrative at all. So it seems to me that the, the word peretz goes back to breach, right? Ma paratzta perech, peretz, ma paratzta peretz, says the midwife, how you have breached forth, O peretz, and she names him. So there's this sense in which these are women who are breaking normative lines, Right, Rachel and Leah get switched on the birth uh, on the on the wedding night, and according to midrashic tradition, it's both at the initiative of Leah and Rachel. They collude together, sisters collusion. They collude together in deceiving Jacob, uh, not just Lavan as it is in the biblical text. And then uh, they switched and they, all of their 12 sons, despite the deception, all of their 12 sons are included in the, uh, the covenantal uh, line, in the covenantal um, agreement between God and the patriarchs. The second story is, is Judah and Tamar. Um, so Judah, and, Judah is, is waylaid at the crossroads, by Tamar, his his daughter-in-law, who he he has sent off to as a as a grass widow back to her father's house because he blames her for the death of Er and Onan, his his previous sons, and he has no intention of marrying her off. So she seduces him at the crossroads, becomes pregnant immediately, and. Um, there's a moment of recognition where he said, Sadkami many, she's more righteous than me when he um, confronts, you know, he tries to have her burnt at the stake and she sends him the indemnifying signs. So Tamar is a trickster. Uh, Rachel and Leah are tricksters. Ruth is a trickster, but she never goes through with the seduction, at least in my reading, right? She... She stages a seduction. She's set up for a seduction 
by her mother-in-law, Naomi, but she never follows through on that end um, because at the fateful moment, um, let me read the text. At the fateful moment, uh, Boaz wakes up and he says, who are you, right? Miak Biti, who are you? And then she identifies herself as, I am your handmaid, Ruth. Spread your robe over your handmaid, for you are a redeeming kinsman. So there's a moment of recognition. There's a naming. There's no subterfuge here. And I read that story as redeeming the previous stories of Judah and Tamar, and the daughters of Lot, who are um, the eldest daughter, is the the progenitrix of Moab, of the Moabite people, which literally means Miav from the father. So um, Ruth is not that, and so she's elevated to the status of, of matriarch. And those two stories are implied as. Uh, ways that we must read the book of Ruth in the light of those prior episodes in Genesis. So you mentioned uh, Midrash. Uh, how does Midrash and Talmudic commentaries wrestle with the female subterfuge? Are they even, are they even able to perceive it at all? Like how do they uh, deal with that ar archetype or typology? Oh. Uh, I, most definitely they wrestle with it. Um, and I think they laud the female, uh, uh, the, the female initiative, um, especially when you look at the collusion of sisters of Rachel and Leah, there we have a really strong sense that Chazal, right? The rabbis praise Rachel for herself uh, self-limitation, let's call it uh, self-effacement. The word is inventata, it's her anava, her, her modesty, and be, being willing to allow Leah to go forward and, as the first to marry Jacob, right? She gives, according to Rashi and, and Rashi's, all, uh, Rashi's sources, I think I cite Megillah and maybe Genesis Rabbah, she gives these signs to her sister so that her sister isn't shamed on the wedding night. And then uh, Leah resists also, uh, resists the tradition that she should marry the older brother. The older brother is to marry uh, the older sister, Esau, Esther. Esau and Leah, da da da, da. Um, and she resists that, and she refuses, and she would rather marry Jacob. I know that sound, sounds really far fetched, but I think it's actually giving the women agency and praising them for that that agency in deceiving Jacob. And of course, this is the Jacob is getting comeuppance at this point for his role in deceiving his father. So they're agents, they're moral agents of change uh, for Jacob in the sense that this is poetic justice. Um, but they're also uh, then allied in 
terms of raising the 12 tribes that will become the Israelite people. Chazal, that is, the rabbis are very aware of that, that role that they play. So I guess my next question is, how does this go on later into the narrative when you get to like David and his wives? How does the subterfuge play out there? Yeah, so David's wives all are, are all engaged in indirectly or directly in some kind of act of deceit. And it's all bound up in promises. So Michal, for example, is promised as a bride price for for David slaying Goliath. Um, actually, it's probably Merav is originally intended as the wife. And then she, because she loves David, is put forward as a an object of deception on the part of Saul. But she ends up becoming the deceiver and turning against her father and, and allying with David. So while she's, to a certain extent, she's a, a tragic figure, she has agency in so far as the way that she decides to ally with her husband against her father. Um, so that's Michal. And there's there's the acts of promises. Uh, what I, I went down a really deep rabbit hole and I seem to um, be digging myself even further, but I got very much involved in oaths and reading the story of Bathsheba in the light of the impact of oath language. So Bathsheba I read as daughter of oath, Bathshvua. She invokes in uh, 1 Kings chapter 1, she invokes a supposed oath that was exchanged perhaps as love whispers on the pillow between her and King David that she would bear the heir to the throne or he would promise her son to become the next king. And what happens is that uh, uh, that oath, you know, we don't know if it ever took place. Now it's Nathan, the prophet Nathan, that sets her up to talk of this oath. But what she does in her, in changing the oath, is she brings God into the picture. She has him swear in the name of God to make this promise, right? Reinforcing the oath and also perhaps deepening the ruse um, that, that, that she sets up. And, and like, a, like the other matriarchs, she, what she is doing is she's determining who should be the next in line, who should be the king, who should be the recipient of the covenant, who should be the chosen son. So Sarah does that. Rebecca does that with Jacob. Um, Batsheva does that with Shlomo, Solomon, um, so, uh, yeah, uh, that women are, are making those choices. And the other figure I spoke about, uh, in terms of the Davidic line was m- my favorite, Abigail, Abigail, uh, and I titled that woman of valor, Eshetail, 
or woman of wile. And I was interested also in the way she deployed oath language in order to uh, save David from massive bloodshed. Uh, She not only saved David, but actually saved her whole household. And then, um, and she invokes oaths and uh, um, she, uh, she counters her oath against David's oath and undermines his bloodthirst uh, and says that God will indeed take care of Naval, her, you know, boor of a husband, uh, leave it to God. And the question is, does she leave it to God or not? And here I uh, bring in uh, Mayer's reading of the story that actually she might have had a hand in the death. Or she just might have invoked God's intervention. Um, and Oath has that power to do so. So God indeed intervenes. Um, he's struck dead. Uh, of, well, not right away, but he, you know, he's, he's made like, like stone. And, um, and uh, after a 10-day period, uh, after his comatose, uh, he dies. So, uh, yeah, that was, again, the way that women are making choices and manipulating things and changing and diverting uh, people in certain directions, especially David. So in the, um, in your last chapter, chapter nine, you mentioned that you want to make a qualification on female, that female isn't, how Simone de Beauvoir put it, the second sex, but it's not something biologically determined, but it is engendered. Is there any male characters that engender this female ruse? Uh, Joseph. Joseph is, uh, passes as uh, the Egyptian viceroy, and I'm suge- I suggest that he learns that idea of masking in order to reveal the truth. He adopts that as a feminine modality, right? And to have knowledge subtool that's below the surface, um, that's a source of freedom or flight. So here we have, he, so I think right from the outset, he's described as, uh, as beautiful, favored, like his mother in that sense. Um, he's given a cloak. Uh, you can say that that cloak, that Ketonot Pasim evokes the Ketonot Pasim of the princess, Tamar. Um, he's dressed up. That cloak becomes a, uh, a target spot for his victimization by the brothers. He's almost killed. But he's really hyper-feminized in in the court of Potiphar, in Potiphar's house, when he becomes the object of Mrs. Potiphar's unwanted attentions, uh, her sexual solicitations. So he goes underground 
right? As a consequence, she frames, uh, she tries to seduce him. He refuses. She frames him for rape and he's thrown into jail. A pit goes below the, the, the surface of things and learns the art of subterfuge there. Emerges then um, in Pharaoh's court and begins to play the role of the viceroy. Only behind that mask does he begin to discover his true identity and then and also evoke the truth behind his what his uh, brothers do and did to him. So um, that's what happens when they come down to Egypt and he poses as the vis- viceroy as Egyptian and they don't recognize him. And eventually the truth emerges. Uh, so I see him working in a feminine mode there of subterfuge um, and, uh, uh, you know, deciding not to become uh, an object, but an agent behind the mask and um, acting out. And of course, his role is very much echoed by Esther later on uh, in the narrative. Uh, So in, in the book of Esther, set in the Persian period, Esther is uh, initially hyper-feminized. She's passive. She's beautiful. She's uh, taken into the palace of Achashverosh. She's set up for this so-called beauty contest. It's actually, in fact, a series of one-night stands. Um, And she learns to do do what everybody else tells her to do. Hey, guy, the one who's in charge of the house, and she follows what he says. And of course, Mordechai, she only does what Mordechai tells her to do. Um, so she's very hyper feminized, and then she emerges into her humanity when behind the mask, right? And her Jewish identity isn't, re- isn't revealed behind the mask. Um, And then eventually when the mask breaks and she reveals who she is as a Jew uh, under the, also under the decree of genocide, only then um, does that sort of that, that sense of deceit and um, subterfuge fall away. And then she becomes a real player, a total player in, in advancing the plot. So before we go, uh, we usually like to ask our guests, are they working on any uh, further any further projects that they're working on? Yeah, I'm working on a book called Daughters in Danger from the Hebrew Bible to Modern Midrash, also to be published under Sheffield. And um, uh, it's, it's a book that I think dovetails the female ruse in interesting ways, but instead of looking for women who have agency and voice and use subterfuge under the, under male um, power and power, you know, a, a patriarchal world here, I'm interested in actually the women who don't have voice uh, who become victims and look at the ways that we might give them back voice 
Rachel Edelman, thank you so much for the interview. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me.